All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome back to another episode of Your Brain on Science. I'm your co-host Elena, and today we're going to begin our two-part adventure into how drugs work. This first episode will dive into the basic concepts that underlie all of biology, and then talk more in depth about what makes a drug different from the next. Welcome to our first part in talking about structure equals function. Before we bring in our guest speaker, I just wanted to go uh, over a couple basic concepts. So the main concept here, as we mentioned last week when we were going over that paper, is structure equals function. So this concept is one of the overarching themes of biology. And once you understand this, it makes getting the trickier science a little bit easier. So. The way something is structured in the body, the brain, or in nature, it usually determines how it fits into the system and how it'll interact with other parts of the system. So the classification of living things and drugs is usually based on their structural and functional characteristics. So let me provide some examples. Uh, As a human, we are mammals, right? And this is because of a few different factors. So the presence of hair or fur, which would be um, a structural characteristic, Uh, We're warm-blooded, our babies are born alive, and we have the presence of mammary glands and a more complex brain system than our non-human counterparts. All of these are examples of structural and functional characteristics. So I mentioned that the presence of hair fur um, is structural and we are warm-blooded, so functional. Presence of mammary glands, structural, uh, allows us to take care of our young, functional. So another example was that bacteria is prokaryotic because it doesn't have a nucleus, which is a structural characteristic. And then in the case of drugs, which is what we're here to talk about today, psychedelic drugs, things like LSD, DFT, or psilocybin are all classical psychedelics because they have similar chemical backbones, so structural, and they all activate the serotonin 2A receptor, functional. And so we're going to be focusing in on this concept at a really chemical level, meaning the the structure of the molecules is determining the property of the substances, which then determines their function, which goes into the subjective effects in humans, aka how drugs work. To talk more in detail about how drugs work, we have a guest with us today. Welcome, Harrison Elder. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Hi, Elena. Thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of this stuff. So my name is Harrison Elder. Um, I'm a behavioral pharmacologist and PhD student. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with all different classes of drugs in the past. I've studied uh, cannabinoids and opioids in human clinical research. And most recently, I've been focusing on uh, drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine and, and their use uh, together, uh, but using animal models. So I have a pretty wide ranging Um, background in all sorts of psychoactive drugs and how to research them. What's your favorite psychoactive drug to research? It's a great question. Um, Obviously, we're going to talk about psychedelics today. Psychedelics are like one of the most most mysterious compounds or classes of compounds out there to research psychoactive wise. But I also am really partial to um, 
amphetamine research, just because they also have a really complex pharmacology and are super widely used in our society. So both of those are, would be ranked very highly on my list of favorite drugs to research. Nice. And as we'll get into next week, there is some overlap kind of in those two categories. So certainly. Yeah. Yeah. They're very structurally related. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about tryptamines uh, as our part one of our structure equals function episodes. So I guess we'll just jump right in. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. Uh, so what is a tryptamine and what is an ergoline and how are they different? That's the number one question. All right. Well, so to understand what a tryptamine and an ergoline are, you kind of first have to understand what serotonin is. So serotonin is this molecule with two different rings on it. They're fused right together. And there's like a little chain off the side with the nitrogen on it. Um, what tryptamines are is just a really slight riff on that chemical structure where they have a two you know, methyl groups on that nitrogen and then any number of substituents on the rest of the molecule. Um, but most tryptamines that we're interested in studying tend to be psychedelic. So things that you might be familiar with are DMT, component of ayahuasca, um, psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, and the list just kind of goes on from there. Um, that the other word you said, ergoline, those are also technically considered tryptamines, but they are a very different looking molecule. And the reason being is that they include that tryptamine structure with two different rings and the you know nitrogen chain off the side. Um, but then they also have multiple other rings uh, that make it look like this kind of big. I don't know. Tetracyclic, yeah. right? For, yeah, for all our chemistry buffs, tetracyclic uh, is the word. But we're going to, for the people who aren't interested in chemistry, we're going to provide like a little video of uh, these structures so you kind of know what we're talking about. Yeah, that'll probably be helpful. But it's just kind of this big L-shaped molecule. And you are obviously probably familiar with the most prolific of the ergolines, which is LSD. Um, so LSD is a tryptamine and an ergoline. Um, but all tryptamines are not ergolines. It's kind of a, you know, every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square type of deal. That's a great example. Um, so when we're talking about, so we'll stick with tryptamines right now. We'll right? stick with tryptamines. Yeah. They're simpler. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll later maybe discuss uh, all the ergolines and the differences between um, the psychedelic versus the non-psychedelic ergolines. It's a whole episode within itself. So today we're just going to focus mainly on the basic tryptamines, um, like DMT or psilocybin. So uh, when we talk about that, you mentioned, you know, focusing on serotonin. So how do we get from serotonin to, you know, the structure of, say, psilocybin or psilocin? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I encourage, you know, like you said before, we're probably going to have a video after this to draw some of these structures, but you can very easily go and check out Wikipedia and, and see all of them and compare them. But um, as I started to get into before, all of the tryptamines are incredibly closely related to serotonin. They share that this very core backbone of two rings in the, in, um, the side chain containing a nitrogen. Tryptamines specifically refer, usually refer to um, these psychedelic drugs that have two methyl groups off that nitrogen. So these two little carbons that are protecting the nitrogen. And then uh, a drug like psilocybin has this one big phosphate group that's right off the top on this, on uh, what we call the four position. So it's a couple uh, carbons away from where that nitrogen chain comes off. So you have this two rings, 
one big chain with a nitrogen and two carbons and then a big phosphate group. Whereas with serotonin, it only has one little um, hydroxy group that comes off of a different part of the molecule. So it's just a slight tweak on that serotonin molecule. Which is super interesting because um, as we've mentioned many times before, a lot of psychedelics activate a multitude of serotonin receptors. And that's because they're similar to the endogenous compound serotonin. Yeah, similar enough to bind to their receptors, but different enough to activate them in a different way. Right. And that's why drugs are cool. Um, <laughs> so um, going along with kind of the structural differences, how do they alter the way that they maybe interact with the brain, the physiological response or the behavioral response? Absolutely. So one, I mean, one of the most commonly used metaphors for this is like a, a key into a lock. But if you think, I like to think about it more like that in the kids game where there's cutouts with like a, a triangle and a mm -hmm. square and then the blocks that the kid has to try to fit in. Right. It's more like you have one of those that's made out of a squishy material. So if you like, you can, in some circumstances, push um, maybe not so triangular block into the triangle space, but that then obviously causes the triangle to deform a little bit. And that, that like deforming property of, of putting a different molecule in there causes the parts of that block that are in the cell to then squish a little differently and then activate different pathways. So you put a triangle in there, very uh, typical change, typical um, downstream pathways are activated. You shove maybe a small rectangle in there that wants to just really wants to fit in there. You might get a little squish that then causes something mildly different to happen inside the cell. And so that's kind of, that's kind of how differences in structure end up altering um, how they dock and then how they cause uh, changes in their activity inside the cell. I love that metaphor and I literally don't know why I've ever not thought of that, but that is a really good way of explaining. I mean, it, it, it fails a little bit with the forcing, but I think it gets the right, point across. Like yeah, but it is Proteins good. Proteins are squishy. They can, you know, they can... Well, there's different conformations yeah. based on activation and, you know, exactly. all the nuances. Proteins aren't static. You know, they, they're always, they're shifting in relation to their environment. Yeah, I like that. That's good. But... <laughs> um, so what are some ways that scientists kind of figure all this out, right? So um, the way that different psychedelics bind to the receptors, so that's called affinity. So that is... One drug may have more affinity for the serotonin 2A receptor um, in this context than another drug. So the way that we look at that is binding assays. And so we use um, like displacement of radial ligands that we know bind to the serotonin 2A receptor with our um, agonists of interest. So uh, for example, if we wanted to look at how um, psilocybin or psilocin binds to the serotonin 2A receptor. We could use a radio-labeled um, antagonist like catanserin or a radio-labeled agonist like LSD and see if the psilocin displaces that drug um, and then figure out like, is that, if it displaces that, then that would suggest that it's binding at the same site on the receptor. So that's one way that we kind of looked at uh, the selectivity or the affinity for a certain receptor. Um, but like we mentioned last episode, the affinity doesn't necessarily mean efficacy, right? right. So. I mean, the way that the way that I always think about like affinity, like an affinity of a drug is very similar to, to a magnet. So something that has a very low affinity like is going to be kind of like a weak magnet. It's pulled to the receptor, but it's not not that strong. It's not it doesn't have a strong pull. Whereas something that has a super high affinity 
it's going to be like that receptor sitting there with the magnet. And as soon as the molecule drifts by, it gets sucked right onto that receptor. So that's just typically how I think about it in my head. If, you, if we're thinking about affinity as, you know, how easily or how much a molecule wants to be sucked into and bind to that receptor, efficacy is more related to when that molecule does bind to the receptor, how much of a response are you getting? And we typically quantify that from zero to hundred percent, depending on the effect you're looking at. But, um, like, let's say I get, you know, one molecule of drug A and one mo molecule of drug B, and they both bind to the same receptor. A drug with a higher efficacy might bind to the, uh, the receptor, like drug A binds, causes a hundred percent out of a, like a hundred percent of the, like if you're comparing it to serotonin, the effect right? that we could, you know, possibly measure like high efficacy compound might bind to that receptor and cause a very strong reaction. Whereas a low efficacy compound might bind to the receptor and activate it, but maybe not to the same degree. Yeah. Like 20% of the response, a fifth, you know, it's, you've made that protein squish, but not enough to get the maximal response out of it. Right. Not a full squish, not a full squish. <laughs> yeah. And efficacy can be measured like in a lot of different ways. You can do it in cells to look at, you know, the downstream processes of the receptors that they activate, or you can look at it in behavior as well and see, you know, if there's an effect that you're looking for. It is very um, effect focused or like assay focused. If you're looking at cells, efficacy might mean ton of calcium release. If you're looking at, you know, analgesia, like pain relief, that might mean that you're, that the animal's tail stays in the hot water for the whole 10 seconds that you have mm -hmm. allotted. So it, it, efficacy means a lot of different things based on, you know, what you're looking at. But in general, it just means, you know, with one equivalent of this drug versus another drug, how much of an effect are you getting for the same amount? Yeah. Uh, binding to that receptor. Definitely. And that's also where potency comes in, right? So that's, yeah, that, that's actually, that is a good segue into the potency thing where potency is a little more holistic. So efficacy, if you think about efficacy in terms of proteins and, and membranes and receptors and pathway activation, right, <laughs> like a, a drug molecule binding to a receptor and cause, you know, having certain levels of efficacy at that receptor potency is more related to like the whole being the holistic picture. Yeah, for sure. And like in some of my studies that I've done, right? So I do head twitch a lot in lab. Uh, it's like one of our main uh, ways that we look at psychedelic effects in rodents. So um, for example, sticking with like tryptamines or ergolines, um, I've done a lot of head twitch with psilocybin and it produces like, you know, uh, increased head twitch compared to like a saline control. But when you give LSD, it's LSD produces way more head twitch than psilocin right. does, right? So that's the same as LSD you were saying with mescaline and, and DOI, right? So right. it takes uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, a quarter or less than a quarter of what it does for LSD right. than psilocin. So no, that's actually, that's a great point. Sticking with the, the ergoline like topic, uh, if, you know, if you've ever seen people talk about LSD, they're sold in little tabs and tiny little pieces of paper. All it'll take is one tiny little piece of paper with a few micrograms of LSD on it to give you a full blown psychedelic, you know, experience. Whereas psilocybin might take tens, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 milligrams. So on, as many milligrams are, are in a handful of mushrooms to give you a mm -hmm. psychedelic experience. So that's kind of 
an example of huge potency differences. Yeah. Few molecules LSD versus a bunch of yeah. psilocybin. Needing more of a substance than another substance pr to produce the same effect, even if they bind at the same receptor. Correct. So yeah. bringing it all around. That's exactly it. Yeah. Ends up being more apt because let's say you took it, you know, your house key and then you moved one of the teeth on the key to a different location. It obviously wouldn't open your lock in the same way. Right. And so even just moving one of those teeth over a, you know, a fraction of an inch is going to cause big drastic differences on what, like what lock that key fits into, how it opens the lock. So let's say, you, you know, DMT, very pared down molecule. Very potent, yeah, very potent psychedelic, but you need to smoke it or eat it with a uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor for it to be active. You put an oxygen and a phosphate group on it. You have psilocybin. Eat, you can Good eat mushrooms go. and have the exact, you know, full-blown effect. So that's just one example of like DMT destroyed by your body because it's not, doesn't have the right substituents. Psilocybin, put one on, or psilocin even, even more simple put one hydroxy group on it and you have a compound that can survive the acidic environment of your stomach. Yeah. So just little tweaks like that. It's so fascinating how it can change one substance literally to the next. Right. And, and that's so what's so interesting about the paper we discussed last week is that, you know, just tweaking these little structures can make such a difference in even the selectivity or the outcomes of a single molecule. No, I, I mean, Another example I had before we started recording, and I forgot it, um, <laughs> was LSD. LSD, technically a tryptamine, very different structure. But this, like it, you take LSD structure and, and look at it in an in vitro model, LSD binds to dopamine receptors. It binds to ton of serotonin receptors. It, you know, adding that extra couple of um, rings, you know, going from two to four rings with a nice L shape to it, like we talked about before, gives it a whole bunch more activity, not just more potency at serotonin receptors, but you're also hitting dopamine and um, adrenaline receptors and all sorts of other things just by tweaking that, that molecule in a, in a fairly mild way. Yeah. So we've been very chemistry-based, very cellular, molecular. What about people, right? So that the people are here to hear about what it's going to do to them, right? Sure. So, um, so how does differing structures of these compounds actually affect subjective effects seen in humans? You know, and we could, I mean, we could go on about this. That's, all day. The, question. That's the question. That's no, but that is, it's a fun question. And there, there really are some, some objective differences, subjective and objective differences between how like tryptamines, ergolines and compounds we'll talk about next week affect you. But, um, let's just, let's say we'll take psilocybin mm -hmm. dyed in the wool tryptamine about as simple as you can get, um, versus LSD, also a tryptamine, but a little, more little bit more. Little flare. Big difference, duration. Let's, we'll just start with that. The structure of a compound, you take a tryptamine that's very simple, your liver can process easily. You have, you end up feeling the effects of the psychedelic for three to six hours because your body kind of chugs through it pretty quickly. LSD, on the other hand, a little bulkier of a molecule, ergoline, takes your body longer to get through it. And also it has a structure that gets trapped in your receptor. Yeah. So it, that can end up getting, uh, giving you psychedelic effects for eight to 12 hours to 16 hours for a very long time in comparison. And that's just kind of one example of how they mm -hmm. differ in that regard. Another way that they can differ is, you know, <clears throat> 
some of these drugs hit a ton of serotonin receptors, all of them. And that can give you a really kind of, I don't know. I'm word. pretty sure LSD hits almost every, maybe not one, but like every other serotonin receptor except for one of them, right? Like that's right. insane. Uh, and, and I mean, psilocybin's pretty dirty too. They're all, yeah. I love, I love the fact that people use the word promiscuous to design, like describe yeah, body right? infinity. <laughs> and that's one of the great questions of the new, I guess, psychedelic age that we're in right now, right? Is everyone's trying to do the great race to design the selective um, psychedelic that's only going to do what we want it to do and not the other. It's like the million dollar yeah. question of this era of psychedelics. You get up that by a few zeros. You're like Dr. Evil. Zillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously though, I, just think about any time that you've heard someone describe the like differences between an LSD or a psilocybin experience. Their different structures cause them to bind to different receptors and because of that, they have, they have very different effects. One might a lot of people describe um, psilocin, psilocybin feeling very emotional and very relaxed in it, like not energetic, it just comes in waves of relaxation mm -hmm. and analysis. And some of that might come from the fact that it's binding to all these different serotonin receptors, but not much else. Whereas LSD, you might hear people describe these really huge thoughts, you know, stimulation, dancing, like, to, you know, it's a bunch of different effects that are, are very different from psilocin uh, or psilocybin. Some of that might come from its, you know, activity at adrenergic receptors or dopamine receptors mm -hmm. and its structure is kind of what is giving it that. So differences in the structure and binding cause hugely different experiences. And I'm trying to stay within the tryptamines here. I mean, there are, there's so many other, there comments. are <laughs> dozens, if not hundreds of tryptamine analogs that are out there that people have either tested themselves or done, um, formal research on, you know, and they found that, for example, you put one ethyl group instead of uh, a single carbon on that nitrogen, you get an entirely more clear headed trip than you would with uh, psilocybin. Yeah. It doesn't bind to the same receptors. You don't have as much mind bending kind of effects. Mm -hmm maybe you get some more visuals out of it. So just really tiny, about as minuscule a tweak as you can possibly imagine um, can have drastic effects on how these drugs will make you feel and, and their effects. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a really good way to kind of end our conversation on like structure and maybe just, I want to just uh, add a brief disclaimer that like uh, we talk about things very scientific based here. So I just also wanted to point out that there's a lot of other things that go into the effects of psychedelics that aren't necessarily just, you know, the structure and the chemical like components of these drugs. There's also things like set and setting. It's individual, uh, like where your mind's at. It's, uh, you know, just your environment that you're taking stuff in. So just be mindful of that and, you know, do your research, uh, talk to friends and kind of figure out what's best for you if you're planning on doing any of these psychedelics. A hundred percent. They're incredibly dependent on what your current mindset is at the time and where you're taking them. You know, I'm sure everyone can imagine that it would be a very different experience to do a drug out in the woods on a hike versus in a, you know, crowded downtown subway station that just to give you a drastic example, but just be careful because while psychedelics are very physically safe, they are not without their risks and they can be, intensely psychologically altering and inebriating so please don't take this <laughs> as a, a 
uh, encouragement to go take these drugs, but just be, you know, if, if you do plan to do that, please be careful because they are definitely not without their risks. Yeah. So, all right, that's all we got today on tryptamines, but uh, Harrison will be back next week talking about phenethylamines and amphetamines. So please join us again because it's going to be a really interesting conversation as always. So thanks, Harrison, for coming and hanging out with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. Yeah. All right. So as always, please uh, subscribe, like, rate, comment, tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your cats. Uh, yeah. And thanks for listening.